brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, four videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Happy days are here again, Higher Side Chatters, as we all wade through a thick electromagnetic soup of signals determined to focus in on the one that matters. Because it does seem like we are at a point in the timeline where policy and technology are synergistically sucking the life out of life and attempting to replace it with a mechanical and artificial AI-controlled dystopian nightmare. We see it in social media, the GMO steamroll of the world's food supply, the funding of computer-based common core curriculum in schools, CRISPR gene splicing, the smartphone obsession, and pretty much everywhere you look. But if anything gives me hope, it's that empires have been attempting to beat down the human spirit for centuries, probably since the beginning of time, and yet here we are. It seems that maybe dismantling and replacing the cosmic order and realities design might be a bit harder than the nefarious few had bargained for, but that doesn't stop the esoteric tug-of-war from carrying on, and it won't stop us from resisting. That said, a key component to understanding the big picture and recognizing the deeper motivations of the capstone cabals is an esoteric and cosmological context that one has to travel pretty far off the beaten path of the modern Western world to find. It's just not something you'll hear discussed in the rapid-fire circus of cable news networks or in the discourse of arrogant, atheistic academics. But without the right frame, the picture will never be complete. And fleshing out this framework is exactly what today's returning guest, Joseph P. Farrell, has done with his latest book, Microcosm and Medium, The Cosmic Implications and Agenda of Mind Control Technologies. And he's just the guy to do it, too, as his doctorate in patristics from Oxford University and his long history of folding in exactly this type of context to a wide array of subjects has served him well. You can find his ongoing examination and commentary of this weird world at his website, GizaDeathStar.com, and in the ongoing collection of books he's written, now well over two dozen in number. And with that, let's light the torch of his fifth time on the higher side, the man, the myth, the legend, one of my favorite names in the game, Dr. <laughs> Joseph P. Farrell. Welcome back to the higher side. Thanks for having me back, Greg. In spite of all our scheduling problems, you, <laughs> you were very patient putting up with that. 
Oh, no worries, man. It is definitely worth it because your work is so unique and I'm as excited as ever to have you here to talk about some incredible subjects as we have over the years. I mean, we've got started with Babylon's banksters and financial alchemy. We've talked about common core schooling, your cosmic war hypothesis, the Hess mess, all in previous entries. But as for today, I think the back of microcosm and medium says it better than I could. It reads, in this latest book, Joseph P. Farrell examines the subject of mind control from a very unusual perspective, showing that its basic underlying philosophy and goal is not only cosmological in nature, but that the cosmology in view is very ancient and that mind control of any sort, from the arts to hypnosis, remote electromagnetic technologies, and electroencephalographic dictionaries has cosmic implications. That sets the stage pretty well, but maybe you could elaborate a bit to kick us off and flesh out what separates this book from most other mind control subject matter. Well, that's relatively easy to summarize. There's a burgeoning literature on mind control, and most of that literature, it's in the form of blogs, other books, and so on. It focuses mostly, if not exclusively, on the techniques and technologies of mind control. But I take the approach that mind control, like the write-up there says, has an underlying cosmology to it. And that cosmology is very, very ancient. It's basically based on the idea that the cosmos is the product of a divine reason, and therefore the cosmos has its own kind of grammar, if you will, of handling information. And once you know that grammar, then any technology or technique that you apply to manipulate other people's thoughts or emotions or decision-taking processes and so on is going to have some sort of cosmological implication. And the other component of this is that most mind control research, as far as I'm concerned, or was able to determine, never talks about the arts. And the arts whether we like it or not, are always in some form or fashion a technique or technology of the manipulation of human passions and, and thoughts. The difference being that up to a certain point in our history in the West, I'd say up to, say, the tail end of the 18th century, was based with a consciousness that was grounded in that cosmology. In other words, they knew, you know, when you were composing music or painting pictures or so on, that you were dabbling in cosmological things. At some point during the 19th century, all of that cosmology gets jettisoned, and artistic expression becomes a personal expression rather than a universal thing. And so people tend to lose the idea that the arts are a form of mind manipulation, even though many artists still practice it in actual practice. So, you know, it's a very complex subject, but that essentially is the difference. That is a great summary. And you write about how all these ideas are kind of tied up in our changing concepts of consciousness and creativity. Mm -hmm. And you say creativity increasingly comes to be defined as originality, and hence the more one breaks with nature and this tradition, the more one is original and creative. Right. And I like that because you can see how the yields in today's culture were seeded a long time ago. Oh, yeah. 
you know, my favorite way to approach this, and I spent a lot of time in the book, is through music. You know, I'm I was brought up trained on pipe organs and then later harpsichords, so you know, I have a kind of an exposure to Baroque and classical era music. And if you look at the cosmology that those composers were familiar with, and I point this out in some other books as well, Thrice Great Hermetica and the Janus Age, for example, their cosmology, they were rooted in a tradition where the role of the composer or the artist was not to express their personal or subjective emotions, but rather to embody certain musical procedures which would conjure passions that were universal to human nature rather than a personal expression. So you see a tremendous shift right at the end of the 18th century as you're entering the Romantic era in the arts where music and literature and painting become a personal expression rather than an expression of this more universal tradition. And as a result of that, art begins to quickly degenerate. You just consider the fact that, you know, at the beginning of the 19th century, you have Beethoven. At the end of the 19th century, what do you have in music? Well, you have Debussy, you have Arnold Schoenberg, you have all of these wild experiments, and the so-called high music becomes unlistenable because it's so personal, it's so individualized, and oftentimes very ugly, that you lose the object itself, you lose the tradition. So there's a tremendous shift that happens in that 100 years during the 19th century, and we're kind of living with the after effects today because Leonard Bernstein made a very, I think, pertinent observation in his 1973 Norton Lectures on Poetry and Music. And his observation was that the universal musical tradition more or less moved out of the high culture and into popular culture. So in other words, he views people like the Beatles and so on as preserving or attempting to preserve some aspect of that more universal tradition in popular music, whereas, you know, the so-called highbrow music just becomes, as I say, just becomes ugly and unlistenable. Mm -hmm. So you have another split that occurs as a result of all this. But behind all of this split is the absence of that cosmology that was very, very old and that had obtained, you know, since ancient times. Right. This also makes me think about religions or that religions today are just shells of their origins. Right. I've talked to guests about how entheogens were involved in the past, obviously cathedral building. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned organs. They're very tied in with uh, religious music oh, yes. and then monks chanting. Just this whole idea of trying to facilitate a spiritual experience using all the tools in the box. And then, you know, today that's just kind of absent. It's absent, and it's absent, you know, for a very, very complex set of reasons. But one of them, since you mentioned religion, is that during the post-war period after World War II, most of the churches within the West, and I would also include Judaism in the sense that most of these religious institutions underwent deliberate processes of the self-destruction of their liturgies and rituals of worship. They tried to update, they tried to modernize, and as a result, they created something so ugly, they emptied the pews. People just quit going. And they changed their confessional 
doctrinal positions by essentially throwing them out. <laughs> so, mm. you know, uh, we're living with kind of a wholesale assault on most of the cultural pillars. And as you say, what it's resulted in is we don't have a an art or a music or a literature that expresses anything transcendent as a matter of course. You still have that, but, you know, they're by far and away the exception to the rule rather than being the rule as it used to be. So there's a lot going on, but the important point to note again is that all of this is a technique of mind manipulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what's really interesting is we'll get into... Obviously, on our side of the pond, we always talk about the negative sides of that, but right. mind manipulation can be used to inspire as well. We've all yes. heard that right. you know, you should listen to classical music more, or when you're studying, people put headphones on the mom's stomach so the baby <laughs> can hear it. You know, these are yeah. probably the wrong approaches, but they're getting at something that is quite right. real. And right. maybe how could we use this, say, Baroque era music? to our advantage, because it is still in existence, even though it's not being made today. Well, it can be made. You know, I, I composed some pieces back in the 1990s myself, just as kind of academic exercises to show that you can still compose in that style and create something original. So it can be done. It's just that nobody wants to do it. And the reason why, I think, is rather interesting. And that is, if you listen to the music of the box or Buxtehude or any of these Baroque era masters, even Mozart was trained in this. So you can, you can listen to some of Mozart's organ music. He didn't write very much, but what he did compose for the instrument are just phenomenal pieces of music. But one of the things that is very common to that music is that it is contrapuntal music. It's got several lines of melody taking place at the same time and making harmonious sense. You know, I, there's a piece I mentioned in that book by Bach, a, a setting of the Lutheran Mass, that's written in no less than ten independent tracks of music, all, you know, taking place at the same time. And the modern musical listener is used to listening to one melody and it's propped up by a bunch of chords with a jungle drum beat going on in the background. So in other words, we've dumbed down our listening ability so that it's very difficult for people to listen to Baroque era music on both a horizontal and a vertical plane. And today we tend to listen just completely vertically and, you know, it suffers a kind of a, a loss of dimensionality. It becomes one dimensional. But, you know, that's putting it as simplistically as possible. But, you know, I, I grew up, as I say, I grew up playing organ and, and then later harpsichord. So I can tell people for an absolute fact that when you're studying an instrument like that, where you're using your hands and feet and doing so simultaneously, it's literally rewiring the brain to be able to think on several levels all at the same time and to coordinate them all. So even that, you know, we're kind of missing that discipline. And, you know, the cosmology of it, again, figures into this, because if you look at what a cathedral is, it's a cruciform figure, and it's a three-dimensional analog of a tesseract, of a hypercube. So, you know, uh, we can get into some very esoteric physics once we start talking about all of this, because it really is a kind of a hyper-dimensional music. It's music on several tracks at the same time. Yeah, and 
we can kind of see why we don't have this anymore because it's hard to have absolute rule over a populace that's repeatedly and routinely inspired by the divine. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that inspires people to fight back or right, to, right. you know, have ideas bigger than themselves right. and, exactly. you know, be true heroes. Exactly. So. Well, what we have today is we have today, you know, this subjective turn in the arts was really a turn towards narcissism. So, you know, today it's all about self-expression and everybody's self-expression is as valid as anyone else's, you know. And so what you have is, as a result of that, you have a kind of a breakdown of, of standards in all of the arts, you know, not just music, but pretty much across the board. There's an interesting YouTube video out that was put out by Prager University, and it was called Why is Modern Art So Bad? And the commenter makes the observation that the Museum of Modern Art in Los Angeles paid tens of millions of dollars, some absurd figure, for a rock, <laughs> you know, because that was art. Well, I'm sorry, you know, a rock is not art. <laughs> you know, Michelangelo's David, that's art. But a rock in its natural state may be beautiful, but you don't, don't need to spend $10 million for it to put it in a museum. And on and on it goes. You know, we've, we've basically created a narcissistic culture, and we pander to it in the arts. And it, it, at, at some point, it's going to break down because... Ultimately, that kind of self-expression becomes so individualistic that you're not communicating anything of, of universal significance to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you do write about the CIA's manipulation of the art scene, and I've heard other content related to the financials of that, that certain people would buy like a Jackson Pollock and for a cheap price and then promote it through all their media. Yep. And then elevate the price and people would just like sheeple can be just say, oh, well, I guess it is art. And then I'm going to buy yep. it. And there's actually a lot of money laundering and wealth creation <laughs> yep. that can come from just that. Yeah, of course there is. And it's interesting, you know, the CIA was instrumental in promoting this modernist movement, particularly in music and the visual arts in the 1950s. And promoting essentially what I, I have to be quite honest and, and say is just plain ugliness. But you see the opposite thing happening in the Soviet Union, particularly under Stalin and his guru of the arts, Zhdanov is his name. And they were trying to promote what they called socialist realism, you know, basically decreeing that you had to write certain kind of music and within certain parameters and so on. So Soviet composers, you know, you stop and think of people like Shostakovich or Prokofiev and so on. They wrote this wonderful music, but they wrote it under stipulation that, you know, they had to follow certain procedures and certain rules. But nonetheless, they were able to create, you know, some genuine art out of it. In this country, the CIA is promoting Arnold Schoenberg and Igor Stravinsky and Jackson Pollock and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Hmm. And another thing that I thought was interesting is you draw some pretty interesting parallels between art and transhumanism. If you look at paintings and sculptures that were hyper-realistic and full of divine proportion versus the abstract figures of cubism or like right. a Picasso, right. where the human form is warped and distorted, it is an application of transhumanist ideas into the world of art and painting, right? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Because what happens is, and I use the famous painting 
of Nude Descending a Staircase by Marcel Duchamp. And then I juxtapose that with some of the prints of Moritz Escher that we're probably all familiar with, you know, other worlds, relativity, things like this. And what emerges when you compare the two is that in Escher's vision of the modern world, you get several perspectives that occur on a common surface, but they don't lose their ability to communicate a real object. In other words, it's still grounded in recognizable reality. With Duchamp, with the nude descending staircase, you can barely make out the human figure because what's happened is the technique has become all-powerful. And to such an extent, it really becomes kind of the fig leaf that disguises the nude descending the staircase. If Escher had done that, you would have seen a nude, you know. <laughs> you know, it would have been very palpably clear. So there's a lot that's going on. And again, it's this subjective turn plus the self-promotion of the CIA and then the, the billionaire busybodies, as I like to call them, uh, <laughs> that promote all of this ugliness. And, you know, there's no reason that we have to do things that way. And the reason I think that people need to latch on to this and they can latch on to what we're saying very easily, and that's by considering film music. Because a composer of film music is still operating, whether they like it or not, or whether they're even aware of it or not. I suspect some are, and I suspect others aren't. They're still operating with that cosmological view that certain harmonies, certain procedures in music, certain instrumentation is going to conjure certain more or less universal passions and responses within human beings and that's you know you can tell that they're doing this when you pay attention to the music that's in films you know think of the star wars films for example and john williams and his musical score for those films where the emotions are very clearly being manipulated by the music so that art does persist and it would be difficult for us to imagine film music being accompanied with, let's say, with Arnold Schoenberg or somebody like that. You know, you, you wouldn't be able to watch the film for very long. <laughs> yeah, film music is a great example. And so when we're trying to pin down elite agendas, it can sometimes be really hard because we don't have the understanding of their worldview. Their yeah. framework of reality is just not something that's taught to us in school. So it really is a lot of reverse engineering. And yes. you kind of talked about that a little bit, but maybe we can't get into the esoteric physics of it. That underlying philosophy may be all summed up with microcosmism as, as the term. Well, the ancients had the view and it's, it's a very, very interesting view because it's almost coming back full circle. The ancients had the view that the cosmos, first of all, was not a machine. It was a living organism. And you see this turn toward the machine view of the cosmos circa the 17th and then the early 18th century, people like Newton, Descartes, and so on, where you begin to get this very mechanistic worldview. It comes to predominate in the sciences and eventually by the end of the 19th century in the arts as well. But what's very interesting is that the ancient view was that man himself was a microcosm of the macrocosm. In other words, man was at the exact center of the cosmos and not in a 
you know, not in a earth-centric way, but rather that man was the center of the cosmos because he was the bridge between the material and the spiritual and so on and so forth. And you see this view returning in modern physics with the so-called anthropic principle of modern physics. And it's interesting because physicists have discovered that when you look at the scale of things in the universe, all the way from viruses and microbes up to galactic clusters, if you look at the scale of things in the universe, mankind stands almost dead center in terms of the size that he represents. So again, you have this very ancient idea returning. And this turn toward the mechanical part of the universe, toward the purely materialistic view of the universe and hence of mankind, is to me also part of this problem. Because, again, if you look at the Baroque era, music theory treatises in the Baroque era borrowed terminology heavily from alchemy. Well, why alchemy? Well, it's because alchemy, if you look at it in a certain way is a way of processing information and doing so analogically. And this is what you find in their music. They take a certain little bit of musical information and they subject it to, you know, think of J.S. Bach, for example. They subject that little bit of musical information to endless, endless permutations. You know, they turn it upside down, they put it backward. They stretch it out in time, they speed it up in time, and so on and so forth. So it's a way of manipulating information. You're listening to a kind of musical alchemy. And that's coming out of this cosmology where the universe is viewed primarily as kind of an organism, a very complex system, a kind of biological system composed of subsystems that are also complex. And when you look at the scientists of the era, they're viewing things in a very different way. They're viewing the universe as kind of a big machine and nothing more. So you've got that clash that's been happening. And eventually, as I say, it kind of comes to dominate the arts where the abstraction in our cubism that you mentioned begins to take over. The technique begins to take over and you lose the humanity. So in a certain sense, you've got also a kind of nihilism involved, I think, in, in a lot of modern art and in a lot of the processes of mind manipulation, because what they're trying to do, as you pointed out in your introduction, it's a, it's a kind of assault on humanity, per se. Mm -hmm. And I really think this microcosmism is a much more elegant worldview than what we have today. It's almost a magical one with the yes. whole as above, so below principle. Right. And that's interesting because that's a viewpoint that people are almost afraid of today. Well, they should be, because you are absolutely correct to point this as above, so below principle out, because what really is at stake here is something that comes from quantum mechanics, and that's the role of the observer. In quantum mechanics, the uncertainty principle holds that you cannot measure the position and momentum of an electron at the same time. So before you even take a measurement, you're determining the result of your measurement before you even take it, depending on what you want to measure. So that, like it or not, has a cosmological implication. It puts mankind front and center in this observer-affected universe.
And once you recognize that fact, then any technique of the manipulation of the mind of the observer is going to have a cosmological effect. This is why I think people are kind of viscerally afraid of this, because they recognize or they sense that this stuff does have a very dangerous cosmic potential. Yes, I wrote down the quote from the book, if one can manipulate the minds of the observers of man, what is at the center of the cosmos, then one can perhaps manipulate the cosmos itself. It's like the mind is a gateway to the whole cosmos. Right, it is, it is. And this is something, again, that I think the ancients, all the way up to the 18th century, in the arts, knew and knew very well that any expression of art was a manipulation of human nature and hence of that which is universal to us all. And therefore, it had cosmological significance. And you dared not enter into that field without knowing the craft, first of all, and knowing it well and knowing what it could do. And secondly, without entering into it without a great deal of humility. And this, you know, this again is what's absent once you turn to the 19th century with this subjective turn, because, again, what you're saying is that every personal expression is as valid as any other personal expression, and therefore it becomes narcissistic and self-centered. And you begin to impose purely subjective personal views of the world on everybody else through your art. And with that comes the commensurate loss of anything universal in the culture at large, and culture itself begins to break down, as we're, you know, as we're seeing clearly <laughs> today. So yeah, this is, this is very, very dangerous stuff. And then when you add to this the mechanisms of science and the ability to manipulate the mind and interfere with it directly through processes like hypnosis or advertising, you know, we, we take that for granted, or the hard types of mind manipulation through remote electromagnetic stimulation and so on and so forth. Yeah, all of these things, in my opinion, Greg, have tremendous cosmological implications. Absolutely. I, I agree. And that is some great context for the worldview and how it's been used in the arts. And to hone in harder on mind manipulation itself, in the book you take the nefarious American Nazi MKUltra research that's been talked to death right. and contrast it with some of that Soviet psi research that I'm sure people are way less familiar with. And as you mentioned, it was far less based in negativity, it seems. Right. But what is the deal there? What, uh, what were their projects about? Well, the Soviet Union, you know, it's kind of an irony that the Soviet Union had all of these, for want of a better expression, super secret projects in the paranormal. And to a certain extent, this is in opposition to its own Marxist materialism. I think it's coming as much out of the Russian soul as it is out of Marxism. But they were doing some breathtaking experiments in telekinesis in the remote viewing and telepathy between subjects, you know, thousands of miles away, and they were doing this with some success. They were experimenting as well with electromagnetic 
approaches to medicine and disease and healing and so on and so forth. In other words, this was a very, very comprehensive project inside of the Soviet Union, and it made strides every bit as significant as, you know, our own remote viewing program in this country and, and so on that we, we are more familiar with. And they discovered something that is very, very crucial, and that is that if the organism is fundamentally an organism held together, so to speak, by an electromagnetic field, then it became possible to manipulate the entire organism through electromagnetic harmonies and templates and so on. So, you know, we're back, you know, we're square back to the arts once again, once we say this. And I think this is the reason that you see Stalin in particular devoting such attention after World War II to exercising some control over the arts because there was this recognition that this stuff was very, very dangerous. It, it had cosmic implications. But what they were doing, you know, they were making experiments with their cosmonauts who they discovered had an enhanced telepathic ability once they were out of the gravity well of the Earth. And this is something that has also been mentioned from time to time with Western astronauts. So all of these things were occurring, and it really didn't even break, Greg, out into the open until about the mid-1970s when the Soviets began to open up to their Western counterparts and inviting them over for conferences and so on inside the Soviet Union, where they finally began to reveal some of their research. One aspect of this research that I think is very significant is the so-called psychotronic research, these strange objects that were designed and built inside the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia that were just bizarre looking, I mean, this strange looking stuff that were designed to manipulate emotions. And they discovered that you could imprint an intentionality into these objects and that imprinted intentionality would affect the field in which the objects were placed. Hmm. And, you know, that sounds nuts. Well, there's an American scientist, materials professor, professor of materials science at the University of California by the name of Dr. William Tiller, who conducted experiments, and I mentioned these in the book as well, who conducted experiments on a group intentionality being able to affect the pH levels in organism, the acidity or lack thereof in organisms and to affect the gestation period of fruit flies. In other words, he was aiming to test intentionality by measurable differences. And again, he did the exact same thing. He tried to imprint this intentionality into a physical object, an amulet, basically, is what we're talking about, folks. You know, amulets with spells inscribed upon them and so on and so forth. But putting it to the scientific test. And lo and behold, he, he discovered that this was possible, that you could, through sheer intentionality, alter the fabric of a macrocosmic thing like the pH levels of acidity in organisms. So fascinating research. And again, dovetailing and kind of corroborating what the Soviets did. So this stuff is out there. And again, it speaks to this cosmological implication that this can be very, very dangerous. You know, enter this realm at your own risk. 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely very powerful, but of course, these are tools we shouldn't just leave to the nefarious few because they kind of have the monopoly on them right now. Right. And I also wanted to ask you about that curious fact you mentioned about psychic abilities tend to enhance in the upper atmosphere or I guess the further you get away from the earth. What does that say to you about our situation? Well, (laughs) (laughs) crawl way off of the end of the twig here on this one, because bluntly what it says to me is that there's a relationship between consciousness and gravity, or if you will, between consciousness and mass. And, you know, that's going to sound just absolutely nutty New Age stuff. But I definitely think that there is some sort of relationship between consciousness and physics. And again, we're going back to this microcosmic idea that the ancients had that man was a microcosm. He was literally a little universe in that he has all the basic elements of the universe at large in his physical and spiritual being. You know, he's again, he's a topological common surface between the immaterial and material realms, and thus stands almost dead center, again, of reality. So that's what it says to me, that consciousness is a a principle of the wider cosmology. It is squarely part of the ancient idea that, again, the universe is the product of some sort of transcendent reason. It's not just this chaotic product of accidental random chemical processes and so on and so forth. There's a grammar to it. There's a structure to it. And you violate or enter into that structure at your own peril. And it's a highly, I should stress this as well, it's a highly analogical view of the way that information in the universe is handled. And again, you know, this is the way we think. We move from known contexts of knowledge to unknown contexts of knowledge by drawing analogies from things that we do know to things that we don't know. Hmm. You know, you see this process at work in Plato, you see it at work in Aristotle, you certainly see it at work in the medieval philosophers and theologians, be they Christian or Islamic or Jewish and so on. So you certainly see it taking place. And You even get this cosmology expressed in a very pithy way in in the Bhagavad Gita, where it talks about the field and the knower of the field. You know, it's it's a kind of a breathtaking affirmation of this observer-oriented cosmos that we're living in. Hmm. Well said. See, I was thinking about some of the work that you've done on the prospect of an ancient cosmic war and that Treaty of Versailles template and Uh post-war limitations (laughs) and thinking, hey, maybe there's mental constraints on this planet as well as physical ones. Yeah. Uh Well, yeah, there are. And, you know, I don't talk about those publicly, but yeah, you've put your finger right on it. Because if you look at classical doctrines of the fall of man, it's always expressed and couched in cosmological terms. And part of that fall, if you look at, and it's a kind of literature that's not very well known to most people, but if you look at the monastic literature or spirituality that you find in some of the church fathers, they will come right out and say, that these psychic abilities that humans have are proper to the human nature. 
that in other words, everybody has some sort of ability like this. But they also caution that because of the fall, you have to be very, very careful in using it because it is also a way for evil spiritual influences to enter into an individual's life and for that matter into the cosmos at large. So yeah, there's definitely that aspect of things that's going on. God, it's just so frustrating to not even understand where or who we are or what we're dealing with or implications for something that we just don't have context for. It's frustrating. Well, it's frustrating, Greg, and I'll tell you why. You know, in a certain sense, I think that this culture war that we see heating up is really a war that's been designed to cut everybody off from the core traditions of the civilization so that people are just no longer aware of it. You know, there's been this almost total blackout of things. And, you know, to give you the example, let's go back to music once again, just to give you a small example of what I'm talking about here. I mentioned before that in the 18th century, the music theorists borrowed terminology in their music theory treatises very heavily from alchemy. They had a whole doctrine of this cosmology and how it was to be expressed, how you expressed certain very specific things in terms of musical procedures. And that whole cosmological application of all of this in music even had a name. It was called Effectenlehre, the doctrine of the effects in music. And you used that doctrine not only to compose music, but to interpret it. In other words, you used it to determine how you were going to perform it. So, you know, I was fortunate enough when I studied the organ to have studied with a German fellow that was steeped in that tradition. So when I sat down to learn a Bach fugue, for example, the first thing he would ask me is, well, is this fugue subject masculine or feminine or androgynous? That was one of the first things that he would ask me, and I would have to explain why I thought it was one of those three things. And if you go to the modern academy and study music, I can guarantee you 99% of the time, a professor, particularly if they're trying to teach you the music of that era, will not make any reference to that doctrine at all. Okay, because, again, they haven't themselves been exposed to it. And it changes the way that the music is interpreted, and therefore it changes the way that you listen to it. Mm. So, in other words, that's just one very, very small example. Now imagine spreading that example out to include all of the disciplines, philosophy, religion, science, and so on and so forth. There's been this wholesale attempt and effort to cut people off from any tradition of human expression that predates the Enlightenment. In other words, they've wanted to narrow everything down to a purely humanistic foundation and nothing else. And that will affect, you know, the wider culture. It will affect 
a kind of mind manipulation in people so that when somebody like me comes along and says, well, there's this whole other thing out there you've got to pay attention to, I sound nuts <laughs> because, you know, people are just not used to thinking in those terms. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely something there, and I think in a certain sense is very deliberate. God, it's all so far and above the scope of my own sad education, but I'm trying to keep up here. So another thing I thought was really interesting on the positive side, kind of in line with what you're saying, is while our people over here were trying to hypnotize patsies to take the fall for assassinations and mass killings, <laughs> the people in the Soviet Union were realizing that individuals could be hypnotized to embody certain high artists and actually channel their talent. I mean, that's so fascinating. Yeah, this is another astonishing thing, and I'm so glad you mentioned this. You're exactly right that the, you know, I, I don't put anything past the Soviets, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that they had their Manchurian candidate programs too. <laughs> but what is really interesting is that they did have this positive aspect of things where, as you say, they were hypnotizing people to see if they could enhance their natural abilities to do things like learn a foreign language quickly or learn how to paint good high art quickly and so on and so forth. And they found much to their surprise that, yeah, they could. Well, you don't see that emphasis going on in any of the studies that I've seen of MK Ultra. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Insofar as they are concerned with any of that, they're concerned in uglifying it. Mm -hmm. and making it something anti-human rather than something that's more humanizing. So that is one huge difference, as you correctly point out, between the Soviet-era research that they were doing over there and what we were doing in this country in our secret research. It's a huge difference. Right. And there are clues to this. As fascinating as that sounds, we have probably all heard of stories where people wake up from comas or head trauma speaking new languages or playing concert piano. Yep. So it's definitely possible to be able to do something that you weren't trained to do in your youth. Right. I think it's absolutely possible. And it's an interesting thing to contemplate how that memory seems to be part of, if I can put it this way, part of or innate to human nature. You know, as I say, I grew up playing pipe organs and later harpsichords. So, you know, I I was a nerd par excellence as far as my music was concerned. You know, I, you can hardly take a, a pipe organ to a rock band concert, you know, so... <laughs> So I, I you know I was I was cut off from all of that development in the popular arts and during my graduate years of study I gradually lost access to organs and for about 30 plus years I had no access whatsoever to pipe organs I I simply quit playing well I recently through the kindness and generosity of a lot of people that made donations to a virtual pipe organ crowdfund was donated a virtual pipe organ. And I've started practicing. And it's amazing to me, Greg, after 30 plus years of not having played the instrument at all, how much memory is there and still there. And even in pieces that I did not even learn back when I was playing. 
So, yeah, it does not surprise me that you have these experiences of people in comas that wake up with these fantastic abilities. It seems to be something innate to human nature. It's that possibly that effect of the fall again that, you know, we've got many more abilities, but for some reason they were curtailed or our access to them was blocked in some form or fashion that it takes something traumatic to unlock again, but I think what we're seeing is something innate to human nature. In other words, it's not simply an accident of a coma. It's something that if we were to learn how or why that mechanism functioned in the case of some people, we might be able to unlock some of that for a lot more people. And I think that there are even studies, now that you mention it, of cases like that where they're trying to zero in on what it is that is taking place here with those types of phenomena. And I go back to what I said before. I think that these types of psychic abilities are innate to the human nature as such. We're just not, you know, we're just not used to thinking in those terms. And so we pay no attention to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a major clue that something is wrong with the materialist model and there's something else out yeah. there. And one of the biggest mind-blowing moments to me reading about this Soviet research is when you point out that immediately after the Soviet Union collapsed, the Russian press ran some articles disclosing what their people had been working on, maybe their last chance to get the word out in their state of mm -hmm. mind. But they say they had tested flying saucer-shaped aircraft yep. as well as flying saucer-shaped time machines. Yep. It's kind of parallels the research that the Germans seem to have been working on. Yeah, they did a number of very, very strange physics experiments that I talk about in the book. And I think there may be some sort of German connection, because if we go back to the end of World War II, and I've, I've made this observation in other contexts with some other books, but it has always struck me, Greg, that the Nazis were driving a very unusual division of the spoils. They were driving the creme de la creme of their scientists to the West, to, to the United States, to Great Britain, to Canada. But they were driving the middle echelon managers for a lot of these secret projects towards the Soviets. And if you stop and consider what that means, it means that the Soviets got all of the draftsmen and all of the people that could reconstruct the documents trail for them. And I think the Soviets picked up a lot of this stuff and continued experimenting on it after the war. One case in point that I mentioned in SS Brotherhood of the Bell is they got a German radar team at the end of the war that, in my reading of, of the event, actually made the discovery of phase conjugation, multi-beam mixing on nonlinear materials and getting a phase effect on their radar sets that were quite literally blown out when they tried to do this on some of their stealthy material that they were putting on their U-boats. And the Soviets got that team. So I do view the post-war research that the Soviets were doing as being in some sense in some fashion, a continuation of that Nazi research, but not all of it. Certainly the psychic research that they were doing went way beyond what the Nazis were doing in terms of, of what they were doing in World War II. The Soviets put a lot of scientific rigor into what they were trying to do, that the Nazis were just kind of 
using a shotgun approach, you know, let's try this, let's try that. And, you know, and desperately trying to come up with something to win the war, you know, <laughs> but, but the Soviets were very, very deliberate in the way that they set these programs up. And they did so with a lot of rigor. Mm -hmm. And that was so fascinating to read about because we know so much less about that side of the coin than right. we do the MK Ultra side. So, right. I mean, people really should pick this up just to have that piece of context because it's very hard to find, in my opinion. And I wanted to sidestep to something you recently covered in your news and views from the Nefarium segments, and that's this anecdote about Warner Von Braun saying on his deathbed that the cultural boogeyman would come in stages. Right. We've heard this before. First communism, then terrorism, mm -hmm. then nations of concern, followed by asteroids and then aliens. Well, those last two seem pretty epic in nature, <laughs> but big names are writing books about asteroids, and that is permeating the culture right now. We also are opening up a space force. And I just am curious, are some of the technologies you bring up in the book, do they seem helpful to you for these later stages of this deathbed confession plan? Absolutely, they do. If you have the ability to interfere with someone's perceptions through remote electromagnetic means, in other words, I'm talking about voice of God technologies here. Mm -hmm. And these technologies do exist. There are patents for them. I put a few of them in the book. And they have existed since the 1970s at least. If you have the ability to beam, literally, to beam voices into somebody's head using electromagnetism, then that gives you the ability to control perceptions, the potential ability to control perceptions, so that you could literally not only stage a false flag event, but you could stage it quite literally in people's minds. And if that sounds far-fetched, let me give you an example, and you've, you've mentioned this in the introduction. In the 1970s, the, I believe it was the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, sponsored a study of trying to create what I call electroencephalographic dictionaries. In other words, the ability to read a person's brain waves and by looking at the pattern of the brain waves, determine what words they were thinking of at the time. And by the end of this project, I think it was about 1975 or so, I may be off on the dates there, but by the end of this project, they had compiled an electroencephalographic dictionary of about 2,000 words. In other words, if you invent a technology that can remotely sense a person's brain waves, then you would be able, using that kind of dictionary, to read what they were thinking. And that technology, in turn, can be used as a way of beaming waves to a brain and then creating the pattern of waves to create words in people's heads. And by now, some sources indicate, and I mentioned these in the book, some sources indicate that this electroencephalographic dictionary has expanded now to about 70,000 words, if not more. So in other words, you have the means to carry on entire conversations 
between someone with their equipment in one room and somebody that is hearing voices in their head in another. And the interesting thing that we can point to about this technology is I, I mentioned the case of a lady that was subjected to this and started hearing these words in her head, but she would only hear them at certain places in her apartment when she got up and moved out of the field of interference, in other words. Well, stop and think of the Cuban embassy attacks. We have all of these people in the embassy in Cuba that claimed that they were hearing these horrible metallic scraping sounds and that they were sleepless and so on and so forth. One individual reported, well, I heard this when I was asleep, but it stopped the moment I got out of bed. In other words, the moment I moved out of the interference area where these waves were, you know, being beamed, the voices and the sounds stopped. So this is a very, very real technology. The problem with it thus far, as far as I've been able to determine, Greg, is that the technology that we know of is capable of doing this, but only on a limited area. But now, bring in things like 5G or smart meters, where you can turn the electrical circuit of your dwelling into a broadcast antenna. And once you've done that, then you have created a, you know, you've created Dr. Jose Delgado's infamous psychotronically controlled society where you're, yeah, you're literally beaming happy thoughts or bad thoughts, you know, to everybody, depending on what you want to accomplish. So this stuff is very, very real and it's very, very dangerous. Yes, well said. All great advice. And that is exactly what I was going to end this with is really just how much I loved microcosm and medium. It's complex, but I think it really places mind control technology and the full framework of our reality and the worldview of the elite. And that's really important to understand it. And of course, as you said, you have self-published this one. So people should go specifically to your website to get it. They can go there or they can go directly to Lulu. And just look for Microcosm and Medium or do a search for my name and it'll come up. And it will also show the McCarthy, the recent McCarthy book, which is also self-published on Lulu. So that's, yeah, all of my books for the foreseeable future, I think, are going to be self-published on Lulu. Because I'm I'm just done with publishers making 90% of the cover price while I'm doing all the work and getting a measly 10% royalty. And mm -hmm. those days are over. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. And man, well, this has definitely been a lot of fun. A lot of great ideas talked about. Of course, uh, hopefully we can convert some geezers for you. But <laughs> is there anything else to say promotion wise to leave people with? GeezaDeathStar.com is the website. Anything else? Yeah, there's a new book out on Lulu. It's called McCarthy, Monmouth and the Deep State. And let me read the back cover right up for that, because this this is a book I wrote in a fast furious pace, uh, says Senator Joseph R. McCarthy is just about the last name one would expect to encounter in connection to UFOs, the Roswell incident, above top secret black projects, covert operations, or high financial scandal. But think about it. McCarthy began his career in the U.S. Senate a few months before the Roswell incident. He was at the height of his power and influence during the major UFO flap over Washington, D.C. in 1952. 
Is it therefore so strange that in the transcripts of his 1953 committee hearings, declassified only in 2003, that one should encounter veiled and not so veiled references to these subjects, putting a very different context to his massive and career-ending confrontation in the Army McCarthy hearings? It's quite a little book. <laughs> <laughs> Provocative. Yes, uh, you sucked me in again. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> oh, great. Well, Joseph, always a pleasure, and it's always a challenge for me to keep up, but thanks again, and take care out there. Well, thanks for having me back, Greg, and thank you so much for your patience on the scheduling, trying to get <laughs> this interview done. I realize I put you through the ringer on it, but thank you again. Ah, uh, you got it. That's Mother Nature. <laughs> wow. Wow. What do I say, guys? Joseph P. Farrell, always, always bringing the heat in both intellectual and physical form. If you hear that sweet, velvety sound of a lighter sparking up in the background, a sound that is near and dear to my heart, no doubt. <laughs> but seriously, this content got me thinking pretty deeply, and I even wondered if you need to read the book to get what we're talking about. I tried to make sure you had enough context, but it was a lot harder to do that today than it usually is. Because this overall thesis is in the neighborhood of a lot of things we talk about, but some of the connections and threads are a bit more foreign. I'm sure you guys are fine, because this is the sort of thing we've been building towards for a long time. And yeah, I was also nervous we wouldn't get this recorded, because as he mentioned, we had scheduling issues largely due to the storms in his area. Nothing anybody can do anything about, but you know how it goes. A week goes by... And then it's hard to add old things to next week's already full calendar. I've lost more than a few interviews that way, but hey, what do we say to the god of podcasting death? Not today. So I'm glad we got it. And one of the things I love, we did spend a decent amount of time trying to get into the elite's head and deconstruct their worldview. Or not so much worldview as cosmology, as universe view, you know, and how they conceive of reality's structure. And this book, this thesis, obviously had a lot to do with that. And at the top of the pyramid, I make a general assumption that their worldview is largely correct and also ancient. I mean, the elites have always kept the masses in the dark, but to steer many different cultures into various traps. You kind of got to know the real deal, what's really under the hood. At least that's my impression. Call it microcosmism for the sake of branding, but that's how I see the world too, for the most part. I feel like it's pretty synonymous with animism. It's just kind of more focused on man's place in the universe. Maybe there's a little romanticizing about humanity in it, but I'm okay with that. And this idea that a jailbreaking of the mind is a skeleton key to the universe, that's a fascinating idea to me. If you hear people like David Icke talk about the Archons, or even if you take a traditional Christian perspective, there's that thing about the jealousy of angels. And usually it comes back to man's ability to create and that these spiritual entities can only manipulate. They can promote ideas and spread concepts and play the muse, but they can't actually build. They can't actually play the tunes. It's the thumbs, you know. 
Alien gods can beam the Tesla coil plans right into Tesla's head, but they need his thumbs, or it's all just whispers in the wind. So I do take this angle that maybe spiritual forces have reasons for having the elite approach things a certain way when it comes to control. To me, this all jives with that kind of thinking. But his points about these cosmological implications and agenda of mind control tech is really well stated and also has that feral flavor that is quite unique. I really enjoyed the parts that relate to the value of high art. I'm not very knowledgeable or particularly moved by these things, but I think that's because I lack the education in all of that. But I do respect it. And I see something in it that is probably different than what we get from Disney. We've talked about this spiritual linkage, this drawing down effect. And if you want to convince the world that their prison planet is the only layer of their reality, you got to remove those things that lead one to think otherwise. Psychedelics and high art. And replace the world's well-thought-out spiritual traditions with a far less potent, hollowed-out, corporate version. They did it all. But on the positive side, I was also fascinated by the results of the Soviet side research, almost too good to be true. The things that could be done when they wanted to enhance the mind. You know, MKUltra's over here trying to create super soldiers, and they're just trying to create supermen. I don't know, but I definitely have a Baroque playlist now. Personally, it's Chopin's Raindrop Prelude right around two and a half minutes that really speaks to me. But of course, Chopin wouldn't really qualify as Baroque. More of a Baroque throwback, which probably isn't enough by Dr. Farrell's standards, I might guess. But baby steps. And I do think the overall message is that it's us who have the power to create, and we can use the realm of ideas as inspiration, but we choose what we create, and we should do it consciously. Shake off the doom and gloom and the haze of the 9 to 5 routine and really think about what you're bringing into the world and think about manifesting the reality that you want. Focus less on the negative, or at least give it less weight. What do I know about the mechanisms of the universe? I'm just some guy, but some days I feel more hopeful about it than others, and right now I feel pretty good. So I hope you dug it. It's definitely something I'm glad we got done. Joseph Farrell, number five. Check out his other appearances in the archives if you didn't realize he's been here so many times. The Five Time Club is an awfully small group, right? Maybe only half a dozen people or so can say that. I'll make sure they all get their pins, but another aspect of this show I liked a lot really came out more so in the second hour, but it's this exploration of strange events as a type of field testing, in particular, Jonestown, and how it might have been a CIA operation to field test psychotropic drugs on various kinds of people. To me, when he explained it all that way, it just clicked. Also, that the Mandela Effect is field testing for their latest toys, and you should watch these Mandela Effect support groups as they could be potential fronts for the data collection. That's pretty intense. Provocative, provocative. If you see military intelligence connections, then you already know. And that said, of course, every interview you hear out there 
from me for free has a second hour for plus members. And today with Dr. Farrell, we get into how microcosm and medium relates back to Hess and the Penguins, things I mentioned about Jonestown and the Mandela Effect, how psychotropic drugs and wireless technology can work together for mind control agendas, Dr. Farrell's thoughts on ufology in the context of patterns and the mind control technology we're seeing, why spiritual forces might care about earthly geopolitics, magic, and reverse magic instances in world events like the burning of Notre Dame Cathedral, and a very worthy detour to talk about Dr. Farrell's work on GMO politics and food supply administered vaccines. Stay awake. Be ready, folks. Just so much great stuff. Most of it is in the book, but read that book or listen to the second hour because it's definitely worth your time if you're already here and interested. And higher side news, I am feeling the pinch, although a minor pinch because I don't really care about YouTube, but we have had another three shows removed by YouTube yesterday. Victor Thorne, Neil Kramer, and Jim Fetzer. All episodes that were several years old and, of course, came with the warning that if I'm not careful about my content, I could be removed entirely. Well, if you're going to remove shows that are multiple years old and I have hundreds more, I guess the damage is done. But whatever. My YouTube presence is but a small sliver of my overall power and influence, and it makes no never mind to me in the grand scheme of things. But I need you to be aware in case I'm suddenly not there anymore and you don't think to go to my website, thehiresidechats.com, which is the home for all things THC. Go there or use one of the many independent podcasting apps to look up THC or put the RSS feed in because the time is here to stop sucking on that YouTube teat, all right? I'm going to keep posting shows there, but I am not happy about it. <laughs> but big thanks to our guest. Check out his website, GizaDeathStar.com, and tell him the Carl Woods sent you, and I'll see you next time. Your move, mind manipulators, tyrants of transhumanism, and occult crafters of the digital era. Your fucking move. You know the plan has always been to hack your brain. MK Ultra's trying to drive you insane. They'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes You think I'm answering the phone? Well, I ain't You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that the trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become They want a pat down and a swap Don't you see what's going on? Well now you know You're better keeping on your own Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh baby, you can only trust yourself and if you think the system's out of touch, it is, and you can only trust yourself. I hope you know the elite aren't your friends.
They'll suck out everything from you in the end. And if for some reason you think I might be wrong, I wonder where you got that opinion from. You gotta keep the curtains strong, 'cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home. Well, you're not. You should tape the mail slot. And baby, if I seem withdrawn, let me say it's 'cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked. Maybe you should know that the trauma affects you like it does everyone. It's just the game plan. It's what the world's become. And if. 